we've had a uh, we've had a two week break. We got out of a series in Ecclesiastes, and uh, we've had a two week break for me to just kind of be able to share um, just some single messages. And next week we'll be starting a new series. But since I have been here, and since we have started this church, there has been this one question that has been circulating for about six months now that I have heard a dozen times, probably at least uh, more times than I could count. And the question is simply this. How do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know if I'm really saved? How do I know that that, that prayer that I prayed or that commitment that I made to follow Jesus, how do I really know that it is real? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, um, a lot of us struggle with that. A lot of us struggle with assurance. A lot of us struggle with the fact that, hey, that commitment that I made to Jesus, was it really real? Is this a commitment that um, lasts forever, or is it something that I can lose later on in my faith? These are all questions that you guys have been asking. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin to unpack this question, point you to some specific passages in the Bible, and hopefully give you an understanding uh, that we really can have assurance. We really can have an understanding that once God makes a commitment to us that he means it and he's not leaving us and that commitment that you made between you and Jesus is real and it's not something that is fleeting but here's this how many of you guys show of hands real quick how many of you have grown up in church anybody like you grew up in church you were at every how many of you guys went to like every church retreat every church camp all those things well uh, I've said it a few times but I like grew up in church and I was at every camp I was at every retreat. I was at everything that the church had to offer. And there was one thing that I had in common with every retreat and every church camp. I was always giving my life to the Lord over and over. I've like asked Jesus to come in my heart at least 7,000 times. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, so maybe you made a bad decision or maybe you fell into some temptation. You're like, oh God, I'm not saved anymore. Jesus, save me right now. Like, or maybe you're on an airplane. Don't lie. You know when you get on an airplane, you're like, God, if this plane goes down, I want to make sure I'm good. Or maybe you get in the car with your mother-in-law, and you're like, God, please help her to drive safely. She's a little senile. I don't want to die. God, just save me again. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're in a scary situation, and what do you do? You pray the prayer. Why? Because you want to secure your salvation. Because you're not really sure, am I really saved? A lot of believers struggle with this. A lot of believers really struggle. Like, if I would die, like I showed you that video, if you were to die today, could you be confident? Like, hey, when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. Here's the truth. Until you are confident in your relationship with Jesus, there's just certain things in your relationship with Jesus that you're not going to do. You're not going to take risks in the faith if you're not sure that Jesus is committed to you. Um, you're not going to go out on a limb and give everything that you've got to live for Jesus if you're just not sure that you're really saved. Um, how many of you guys have ever been rock climbing in here? Any, anybody ever been rock climbing? Not many. Okay, one person. Great. Awesome. Um, well, there's a difference between repelling and rock climbing. Okay, when you are repelling down the face of the mountain, you are um, tethered in and you are strapped to a cable and a cord. So when you're repelling... Um, you're trusting that this rope is going to hold you. You're holding your weight on this rope. And so when you're on this mountain, and I've done this a few times, you'll do things that you wouldn't typically do if you weren't roped in, right? You'll swing to one side and try to grab to a holding that you maybe couldn't grab. Now, rock climbing is this. 
you're not connected in, you're not on a rope, and everything is contingent on your strength and your might. Now, when you're rock climbing, are you going to take certain risks? No, every little move is going to be very calculated. Why? Because if you fall, you're going to die. And that's a good example for most believers. You see, when you truly understand the commitment that God made to us, that our salvation is secure, when we make that commitment or when we prayed that prayer, whatever it was at that moment in time, then we'll do certain things. We'll take risks. We'll give all that we have to God because we're sure of our salvation. Now, when we're not, it's kind of like that rock climber. We're like, hold on, I'm not going to really jump into church life. I'm not going to really jump into this whole Jesus thing because I'm just really not sure. I'm really not sure if I've made a commitment to follow Jesus. But the truth is, the reason some of us are so weak in our inability to say no to sin is because we're not sure in our salvation. We're not sure in our commitment to Christ. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John 15, 9. John 15, 9. Or actually, this is, this is just a quick verse. You can look on the screen, and it says this. As the Father has loved me... So have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now, there's one thing that I want to point out here. This is Jesus talking about God loving him. So Jesus is confident that the Father loves him. He's confident in the Father's love for him. So he's going to do anything, right, to please the Father because he looks back and he says, Hey, listen, the Father loves me, so I can do absolutely anything that I need to do. The Son, Jesus doesn't sit around and question the Father's love for him. For him, right? He doesn't sit around and go, okay, does, does God really love me? No, he's confident that he knows that God loves him. So this verse is saying the same love the Father extends to Jesus, he extends to us. The same confidence that Jesus has in his love for the Father, we can have in our salvation. We can be sure in knowing that if we were to die tomorrow, that we're going to be with Jesus. So let's begin to un. Pack that. There are three anchors that I'm going to talk about that we can be anchored in, that we can be sure that our salvation is real. Number one is this. Believe in the commitment the Father has made. Believe in the commitment that the Father has made. So here's the deal. When you believe in the gospel, when you believe in Jesus, there's a commitment that is made in that very point of time. And here's the thing that's hard for most of us. It's hard for us to imagine that we could be so wicked and that Jesus could still love us, right? Because we believe, some of us believe that our salvation is contingent on how good we are in seasons of life. Like, if we're wicked or if we fall into temptation or if we give in to that sin or if we do something, we genuinely feel like we lose our salvation. And so what do you do? You find yourself in that church camp again or in that retreat or maybe you find yourself on a Sunday morning service and the pastor's preaching and he's like, hey, if you want to give your life to Jesus and you raise your hand for the 10,000th time because you're just not sure. So now if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And so here's one of the things that we can trust. Number one, believe in the commitment the Father has made. And this is where we can prove this. In uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, it starts here. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So let's pause right there. So when you believe in God genuinely, when real salvation takes place, like that old life, those things that you used to do and those desires that you used to have to please yourself and those things, 
you begin to change. Like, you should be able to walk into a room of friends that you once had, and they should be able to notice a difference. That's all a testimony is. All it is is simply a story, that there's a story that should be developing in your life. And then it goes on to say this, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and, and this life is, not in, his, is in his son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. In verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, get this key word here, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. So a few things to pull from this passage is this. Number one, when you believe in God, he gives you a testimony. He gives you a story. He begins to change things in your life. He takes you from darkness and guilt and shame, and he begins to remove those things. Now, here's where many people get hung up, is they believe instantly when that salvation takes place or instantly when that conversion takes place, they go back and they love Jesus and they're all excited about what's just taken place and then they wake up the next morning and they still have the same temptations and they still struggle with some of the th same things. And listen, that's what we talked about last week, that's sanctification. For the rest of your life, Jesus is going to be making you like himself. So for the rest of your life, you're going to be in process. For the rest of your life, it is going to be a journey because if Jesus dropped it all on you now and he expected you to change everything that you were immediately within conversion, it would absolutely crush you and there's no way that you could handle it. But when you believe, there's an understanding that you were dead and God in his great grace now redeems us. So the key word in verse 13 here is that we should know that if God has given us a story and we have a testimony that we were once here and now God has brought us over here, that we should be confident that what God did is genuine. Now, number two, your salvation, and this is going to hang some people up. Number two, your salvation is based on God's sovereign grace, not your good behavior. Your salvation is based on God's goodness, not your goodness, in other words. Okay? So the greatest assurance you can have is knowing that your salvation is not based on how you feel when you get out of bed in the morning, but knowing God saves you because he's passionate about his name. Okay? Listen, this is the most freeing thing in all of the gospel to know that your salvation is contingent on God, not you. God's work, not your work. So let's unpack that statement. Um, I'm going to read a lengthy passage to you in Ezekiel 36, and I want to prove to you that God is one. He's very passionate about his name, and why actually he saves people is to simply advance his name. Um, oftentimes he saves us because God is good, and he wants to advance his name. So, uh, picking up Ezekiel chapter 36, and it's not going to be on the screens, but we're going to pause and we're going to kind of uh, dive uh, through this. So, picking up verse 36 and 16, and let me give you a little context about what's going on. The nation of Israel is in turmoil. They're at a place where um, they're not following God anymore. They're making like golden calves. They're bowing down. They're worshiping idols. They pretty much abandoned God in a sense. Um, 
they got to a place where they've been wandering around in the desert for many years, and so they're deciding, you know what? God's not going to get us out of here, so let's take matters into our own hands. Um, so let's build a golden calf. Let's worship things. Let's just let's do things on our own. Have you guys ever been in that place when you, you don't feel like God's showing up, and you're like, all right, God, you know what? I need to just take the driver's seat. I got this. Okay, I'm going to do this. And, and to be honest with you, that's the stupidest thing any of us could do. So this is where Israel is at. And it says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, and the house of Israel lived in their own land. They defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways were before me, like the uncleanliness of a woman and her menstrual impurity. That's a crazy line in the Bible, but yes, it is in the Bible, okay? Um, verse 18, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. Listen to this. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my name, or they cursed my name, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But then get this, verse 21. This is where it's all going to take a shift. So you see the people, they're cursing God, they're angry at God, and God is saying, Hey, listen. I, I'm concerned about my name. I love my name so much that I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that my name stands in a good light. So verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among them. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. And I want you to get this. This is really important because this is going to happen quite a few times. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act but for the sake of my name. Okay, just remember that line. Which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when though you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather from all the countries and bring you into your land. And this is where it gets... Really interesting. Verse 25. And listen to all the things that God says he's going to do. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And I could go on and on and on and on. Of all the things that God says that he's going to do. So here's the moral of reading all that. God saves people to glorify his name. And to give us a story. And to give us a story. So here's the thing. Your salvation is not contingent on how hard you can pray. Or how many times you get baptized, or how many times, whatever. Your salvation is not based on any of that. It is simply based on God intervening on your behalf and saving you and doing it because he has concern for his name. Because the greatest thing in the world, uh, and you can see this in the life of my dad. When my dad got saved, he was living this debaucherous lifestyle, this crazy lifestyle just for himself. And then God saves him. And what happens? Because God saves him, God gets glorified because now every single person around him starts getting saved. Because they start seeing, hey, here's this guy that 
man, I don't think he would ever get saved. Anybody have that person in your family? You're like, if, if, if anybody's not going to get saved, if like anybody's not going to make it into heaven, it's aunt so-and-so, right? Anybody have that person? You're like, they are just way too far off. That was my dad. And, and my dad, re my, God reached in the depths of my dad's heart and said, you know what? God said nobody could do anything in this man's life, but I have concern for my holy name. So I'm going to save this man because God has concern for his name. Verse 22 says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. 13 times in 11 verses, God says, I will do these things. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you new flesh. I'll sprinkle clean water upon you. I'll do these things because I have concern for my name. Man is hopeless in sin until God acts. Until God acts. And now let's be honest with you. Let's be honest with ourselves. This may be uncomfortable for some of us. To know that God is a jealous God and he's after his name. Because a jealousy inside of a human being is a negative attribute, right? So we would say, well, why would we want to serve a jealous God who is after his name? Because in the world, if we're just seeking our own praise and we're jealous and, and we want to be glorified, that's a negative attribute, right? But not for God. Because you see, the more that God advances his name, the more that God saves people, the more that God does those things, it brings greater glory to God, and more people get saved through that process. Number three, I think this is going to be big for many of you. Number three, be confident that God is at work, and don't trust your emotions. Be confident that God is at work, and don't trust your emotions. Here's the deal. Salvation is not a ceremony. Salvation is not baptism, and it's not speaking in tongues. It's not. Here's the deal. Here's what we've done in churches over the years. If we've, we've made salvation a ceremony. So the reason that many of us doubt our salvation is because we didn't come to the altar. Did we cry enough? Did we repent enough? Did we do these things enough? Did I raise my hand in the right spot? Well, I didn't get baptized. Well, I didn't speak in tongues when I got saved. Well, I didn't do all these things. Listen, salvation is not a ceremony. Salvation is not contingent on how well you cried or how much you repented. Salvation, yet again, going back to point two, salvation is contingent on God intervening. And for so many times, and this was Listen, I love church camps, I love retreats, but there is something that could be damaging to many people within that. Is like if you don't like if you don't respond in this ceremonious way, and you're not crying enough, and you're not repentant enough, and you're not all these things, then people begin to doubt, like, oh my gosh, well, was it really real? Was it really real? Did I really get saved? So because we have turned salvation into ceremony, people begin to base their assurance on how well the ceremony went. Did I repent enough? Did I shed enough tears? Was I sorry enough? But here's the deal. Repentance and faith are not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And see, that is the most beautiful thing about the gospel is that God in his grace intervenes despite your recklessness. 
Like, despite if you repented enough, despite if you cried enough, despite any of that, God intervenes because he is a gracious, loving father. Here's the deal. When you know how you belong to God, you are basing your assurance on something, not something that happened to you 10 years ago, but you're basing your assurance on something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And that's where we find our assurance. Listen, it's like we talked about on Easter. We can be sure in our salvation knowing simply that Jesus died on the cross and resurrected from the grave. And he is God and he is who he says he is. And that is where we put our hope. So here's a million dollar question that many of you are probably still asking. But I had to set all this up. What do I do when the desires are not that strong to serve Jesus? What do I do when I don't feel saved? What do I do when the, the preacher is preaching or I'm at the church camp and they're asking, hey, who wants to give their life to Jesus? And what do I do when I still feel like, I'm, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if it's there. Like, where am I at on this? What do I do? What do you do when maybe you thought you got saved and now you wake up in the morning and you have no desire to read the Bible? You have no desire to pray. You don't want to be nice to your kids. You want to kick your kids. You know what I mean? Like, what happens in that? Maybe you start to question that the work that Christ did in you, was it real? Was it fake? So listen, folks, there's no easy answer to this question. But for many of us, we have to learn to just simply rest in Christ and trust that God says he is. That God, we have to trust that God says who he is. Because your assurance is not based on your fruitfulness. It's based on abiding in Christ. So here's the deal. Your assurance and your salvation cannot be based on your feelings. Because sometimes I hear people say, you know what, I just don't feel saved. But there's many times that I wake up in the morning and I don't really feel married. And then I remember, I'm like, oh, I'm married, <laughs> right? But are there times when you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't feel like loving my wife. I don't feel like feeding my kids breakfast. I don't feel like doing, I don't feel like going to work. But then what do you do? Reality sets in and you're like, oh, if I don't go to work, I don't have a job. What do we do in marriage when we don't feel like loving our wives? What do we do? We push through those hard days. We push through those emotions. We push through those feelings. Because the commitment and the covenant that you made to your wife or your husband is not based on how you feel. It's based on the commitment. It's based on that our salvation is based on that the commitment that Jesus made to us. And when he said, hey, listen, I pulled you out of darkness and into light. Hey, that's done. It's a done deal. My feelings are not the final say on assurance. So, let's nail down two points. Number one, because here's, well, before I say this, here's the deal. I set all of this up to say this. Some of you may still be asking the question, how do I know if I'm really saved? But we have to define what salvation really is first. Because here's the problem. Um, we live in a culture 
especially in South Louisiana, we live in a culture where people genuinely believe, and if you believe this, I'm not trying to knock you, I just want to expose the truth in this. We genuinely believe that when we were eight years old, if we prayed a prayer that we're good, and now we can live however the heck we want. That's not salvation. Okay? Salvation is not, you know, I said a prayer when I was eight, or some pastor or priest prayed over me and did the little thing, and now I'm good. And now I can live however I want. That is not salvation. See, this is how you know if you're really saved. You know if you're really saved is when you fall into temptation and you just absolutely blow it. And now inside you are just torn up and you have to make it right. Like if you just blow it and you mess up and you're like, no big deal. I would really struggle and wrestle with the fact that you're probably not saved. But if you blow it and you mess up and salvation was real, see, God gives you a new nature and now no longer can you just have fun and enjoy that sin. Now it wrecks you. Now it does something into you and now there's conviction and now there's something that weighs on your heart and goes, man, I can't do this anymore. So here's number one. If you only claim to believe, but there is no life transformation, it's not true conversion. It's not enough to just simply say, well, I believe in God. I believe in God. Listen, Hitler believed in God. I mean, there's a lot of people, especially in South Louisiana, everybody in here will probably say, I believe in God. Belief is not enough. Transformation has to be taking place. Um, here's a few facts for you. Four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. That's 80% of the United States. Four out of five Americans identify themselves as Christians. This group of self-proclaimed Christians, less than, less than half are involved in a local church. Less than half believe the Bible to be accurate. And the overwhelming majority don't have a biblical view on the world around them. And yet they still claim to believe in God. Most self-proclaimed born-again Christians, as if there's any other kind, research, research shows that they are virtually no different in lifestyle than the world around them. They believe just because they pray the prayer, they are sealed, and they are on their way to heaven. Many believe that their works can get them in. Listen, you can work your fingers to the bone. You can do all the good deeds you want. It will never outweigh all the bad that you've done. And that is why we need a gracious, loving Savior. And that is why God saves you despite your past and despite your muck and despite all those things. Because if he had to save you any other way, he couldn't. He's got to go, look, I'll take you as you are. It doesn't matter how hard you work and how hard you try to be a good person. Like, look, as you are right now, all of your sin, all of your mess, all of your junk, I'll take you right now. There's one thing that is extremely clear from this research. There are many people who think they are Christians, and they definitely got it wrong. They definitely got it wrong. Let me give you an example to help set up this next point. Let's say the worship music starts playing, 
countdown goes off, and Madeline and Alyssa and all the team, they're done singing, video plays, and the lights come on, and I'm here just supposed to be to preach, and there's no me. And so people kind of start looking around, hey, where's Pastor Jack, where's he at? And no matter how much you guys look and search, you can't find him. And so, do you agree that this would kind of be awkward for you sitting in the seats, right? You'd be kind of like, uh, what, what's going on? Like, what are we doing here? Why did we show up? And so maybe you just gracefully, okay, we'll give him a few minutes. Maybe he's running late. So you sit there for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. And then ten minutes later, you hear a door burst open. And I come running in, I come up here, I'm sweaty, and I get here and I say, hey, listen, oh, man, I'm sorry, I had some car trouble, I was on my way here, and uh, my tire flew off, it exploded, so I got out, and I was putting my spare on, and as I was walking around um, my car, I kind of got into the road, and there was this 18-wheeler, and it ran me over, and then, like, I got back up, <laughs> and I put my tire on, and I'm here. If I told you that story, would you believe me? No, no you'd be like, you're joking, right? There's no way. Why? If I came face-to-face -face with an 18-wheeler and I showed up here on this stage, I would look a whole lot different than I do right now. Right? I mean, I wouldn't be here. My body would not be the same because it just got ran over by a truck that probably weighs a million times more than I do. So here's the deal. You want to know if you're really saved? You should have had a head-on collision with Jesus, and you should totally look a whole lot different than you used to. You should look a whole lot different before you got saved. And if you don't, I would question you. I would question you. Like, if you're still running with the same people, taking, th doing the same things that you were doing, living the same lifestyle, it's not real. Here's, here's the truth. Living for Jesus is difficult. But the question is, what are you willing to give up to really do that? See, the truth is, the reason that many of us don't experience real conversion or real salvation, it's not really real, is because of this. We're just simply not willing to give up our lifestyle. We're not willing to give up friends. We're not willing to give up doing shady deals at work. We're not willing to do those things. So feel that I'm on pretty safe ground assuming that when you come face to face with Jesus, your will and your wants and your desires should begin to change. And listen, it's okay if they change slowly, as long as they're changing. It doesn't have to be this radical thing. Number two. People who claim to be Christians when their lives look no different than the rest of the world are not Christians. Are not Christians. Now, I used to be so discouraged as a teenager when I would sit in the audience and hear my dad preach. Before my dad was a pastor, he used to travel all over the place and he'd preach in schools and churches and all this stuff. And he used to give his testimony all the time. Like, I could recite it to you right now. Um, I know all my dad's stories, and I'm sure if you stay here long enough, you'll figure out online as well. But so, anyway, I used to get so discouraged in the middle of that when my dad would start talking about his conversion story and 
how they met Jesus. Because he, 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 it's always just like, okay, on May 1981, I came to know Jesus. And when I came to know Jesus, Pastor Jake came to my house. And we got all this stuff. And we put it in a bag. And we threw it all away. And then from that day forward, I lived for Jesus. And I'm like, dang, I don't even know the day I got saved. Like, my story was not like, man, I was partying, I was having sex with all kinds of women, I was drinking, I was doing this kind of stuff, you know, I was into rock and roll, and I was about to jump off a bridge, and then Jesus saved me. It wasn't that. It was, I couldn't even tell you when I got saved. I never had this dramatic conversion story. And then it began to dawn on me, like, wait, hold on. It's not about the ceremony, it's not about how it happens. If my will and my wants and my desires and my affections are changing to please the name of Jesus, I know I'm saved. Because lost people don't ask those questions. Lost people don't ask, am I saved? They don't care. Lost people don't wake up and they lay in bed at night and go, oh my gosh, like, why did I do this? I can't believe I did this. I need to repent of this. I need to ask for... Lost people don't do that. So for many of you, if you're just asking that question, like, man, how do I get this right? How do I change this? How do I repent of this? How do I do this? It shows that God is working in and through your life. The fruit of being forgiven of sin is the desire to flee sin. You know you're really saved if there is a desire that is beginning to well and rise up in your heart to say, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. You turn. And listen, are there going to be times when you fall and you give in? Yes. This is how we know that we're really saved when those times happen. We turn and we run and we don't stay in that situation. So here's the deal. Salvation is not a prayer. Salvation is not good deeds. Salvation is not showing up to church faithfully every Sunday. Although that's a good thing. Salvation is God intervening in your rebellion and setting your affections on Him. That's what salvation is. So listen, I've been saved for a long time. And probably for about seven or eight years of my relationship with Jesus, I genuinely wrestled with this subject. Like, I was the kind of guy, like, something would happen, you know, I, I'd punch my brother, or I did something, or I did something wrong. I was, yet again, I was going back to Jesus, like, God, change my heart. I know I'm not saved anymore. I just lost that. Like, help me. I wrestled with this, genuinely. Genuinely. But then through reading scripture, and actually through reading a book, and don't let the uh, title throw you off, because if you still have questions, I would strongly encourage you to get this book, but it's a book by J.D. Greer called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And it's simply this, how to know if you're really saved. Don't let the title throw you off. It threw me off for a little. I was like, what the heck? But listen, I would truly begin to encourage you to 
begin to have conversations with other people. The whole reason that I wanted to take, and this isn't something that we do all the time, but I wanted to take a question and build a sermon around it because many of you have questions. There's nothing wrong with having questions. And sometimes if we just can raise the boldness enough to just simply ask, a lot of times we can find answers. A lot of times we can find answers. But for me, I dug and I fished and I... All of this kind of stuff throughout scriptures of like, how can I be confident? And honestly, through reading the Bible, I became confident that I was saved. Because here's the thing. How many of you ever heard that question or um, you've heard that phrase that some churches have said, like, once saved, always saved? You guys heard that before? Okay, listen, let me just answer that question for you real quick. It's wrong and it's right. It's both. <laughs> Sorry to confuse you even more. But listen. If genuine salvation comes in, God is committed to you. He's not leaving. If it's not genuine salvation, then God's not committed to you. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so it's wrong and it's right. There is a, it's, it's both. It's both. Like if you're saying, once saved, always saved, God prayed the prayer. Well, you are absolutely wrong. Like if your wills and your wants are not changing, then it's just, it's not true. But God is a loving Father. When He makes a commitment to you, does God break His promises? Does He break His commitments? No. He follows through. So listen, when you're in a season of your life and you're doubting what God's done in you, you need to ask yourself a few questions. Okay, did, did I take part in just an experience? Did, did I come up here and cry my eyes out because I knew that my life was in shambles? And I just needed some help in that season and in that time. Because there's a difference between experience and encounter. Like, don't just experience God. When you encounter God, he begins to change you. You begin to have that 180 of like, okay, I no longer want to do these things that I used to take part in and that I used to do. I'm turning from those things. And I'm beginning to put boundaries in my life to not allow myself to fall into those things. 